You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to First John chapter three, if you don't mind. First John chapter three. The Apostle John is writing this letter some fifty years after his time with Jesus. Um, the Apostle John, of course, being one of the twelve disciples, and uh, writing the Gospel of John, and then writing these three letters. The first of which we've been just doing a few um, sermons out of, and. We'll continue the next couple of weeks in 1 John. So find your place in 1 John chapter 3. While you're doing that, I just want to say welcome to all those that are here. Welcome to those that are watching online. It seems like uh, with each week we gain more and more people watching online. So I always want to make a point to say thank you for joining us wherever you are. We have people all over the country and all over the world that are watching us. And I want to emphasize, if you're watching live this morning, uh, that there is an opportunity for you you to engage with us if the... Uh, Lord speaking to you, if the Holy Spirit's engaging with you, there's a place there where you're watching that you can engage with someone live. And we have people in the back that are waiting to do just that, to pray with you. Uh, if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, all you have to do is ask those questions. So we've got folks that will connect with you right now live. If you're watching recorded, then there's still an opportunity for you to engage with us. You can email me at jeff at highpark.church. You can come to our website, find those connection points. We'll be glad to, to email with you, talk with you, connect with us on social media, whatever your preference is. What we want you to know is that we want to serve you no matter where you are, and we're glad that you're taking part in our services each week. If you found your place in 1 John chapter 3, now I want you to find John chapter 8. So kind of hold your place in 1 John and then turn over to John chapter 8, the Gospel of John. The reason I want to go here is because I think what John observes Jesus doing in this particular uh, part of the Gospel is what gives him the background for what he says and what we're going to look at in chapter 3. Jesus has some pretty contentious moments with the religious rulers of his day. But I think John chapter 8 is probably the pinnacle of that contention. Now, of course, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy. They are going to have him arrested. They're going to get the Romans to be complicit in that arrest. Uh, Jesus will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be put on trial, eventually led and placed on a cross. But we know that the hatred of the religious rulers of the day was building week by week. With every ministry opportunity that Jesus engaged in, the hatred of those who were practicing Judaism grew and grew and grew. As a matter of fact, early in the Gospel of Mark, if you're familiar with that Gospel, it's early in the Gospel of Mark that Mark says that it was very early in Jesus' ministry that these religious rulers decide that Jesus had to die. So, so it's not like something that just kind of happened late in Jesus' ministry, but very early in his ministry. The hatred grows to such a point that these religious rulers, the, the ones who should have embraced Jesus, are going to decide and set in motion the wills that's going to bring about the murder of an innocent man. So I want you to look at John chapter 8. We're going to drop right into this conversation. This conversation is getting rather heated. So let's pick it up in verse 39, and then I'll give you some background. 
So John chapter 8, verse 39 says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. Now pause right there for just a moment. In the paragraph right before this, there's a conversation between Jesus and these religious rulers. And Jesus says to these leaders we know to be Pharisees, he looks at them and he says, now look, he says, if, if you guys will trust me and believe in me, then, then I will set you free. He says, you will be free indeed. Well, these religious rulers got rather upset about that statement because the implication was is that they need to be set free, that they were enslaved, that they were in bondage to something. And they didn't really like Jesus implying that, that they were somehow enslaved. Now, if you understand the Jewish nation, you understand that they spent 400 years in slavery, in Egyptian bondage. So it's kind of a touchy, touchy moment here for them. But Jesus looks at them and says, basically, you're enslaved, and I've been sent by God to set you free. And then they say to Jesus in verse 33 above, they say, well, Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham. Now, the religious rulers took great pride in letting everyone know that, that they were descendants of Abraham, that they were true Jewish people. And so much so in the Pharisees that they were Jewish leaders. They could tell you what tribe of Jacob they were from. Uh, they had a, quite a bit of pride in that. But it was more than just pride. It was trust and faith in their genealogy. In other words, these religious rulers and also the people that they taught, they believed that just because they were descendants of Abraham, that they were right with God. That God was their father, and they were God's children, and, and that was simply because they had in their genetic background Father Abraham. Now pick it back up at verse 39. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Now, you might have heard this phrase before, like father, like son, or like daughter, like mother. Kind of this idea that, that we as you know, sons and daughters of parents, that we bear resemblance, but we also do things and say things that maybe we, we kind of genetically got from our parents, but probably learned in our households. So you hear this, the, the old saying, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Well, what Jesus is saying here is he's going directly to this false claim that they have, that, that they are Abraham's children, and, and as such, they are right with God. So Jesus says, if you're Abraham's children, and remember, Abraham was a righteous man. In other words, he did the right things for the right reasons. So Jesus says to them, if you are in fact Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. What kind of works? Well, love, faith, trust in God, the, the, the things that, that people who follow Jesus and follow God do, that say, I've been changed by him? He says, if you're sons of Abraham, then you do what Abraham did. But look at verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Now, we've we got to understand something here. Jesus is both man and God. I mean, that's, that's a huge concept, right? The fact that, that Jesus is 100% man, but he's also 100% God. And as, as such, as he is God, he knows the contents of the hearts of the people. How else could he know this? He hasn't been told. He knows that they are already plotting his death. And he calls them out on it. He says, if you're actually right with God, if you're right with God because you are descendants of Abraham, then that you wouldn't be plotting to murder an innocent man. You wouldn't be plotting to kill a man who simply told you the truth. 
This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. Now I want you to notice that last phrase in verse 40. Jesus says something to them that's going to become very, very controversial. They're saying that they are sons of Abraham. Jesus says there's no way you can be sons of Abraham, and there's no way you can be right with God, because if you were, you wouldn't be plotting my death. However, you do have a father, and you're doing the works of that father. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God was your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Jesus says that if you're right with God, then you would embrace the one whom God has sent. If, if you really loved God and you were right with him, then you would be right with me. And Jesus said, I've come to tell you the truth, but yet you've rejected it. And you're plotting to kill me. If you were right with God simply because of your genealogy, then you would embrace me. And in fact, these Jewish people were looking for Messiah. Jesus fits every parameter of what it means to be a Messiah, but they don't want him as Messiah. They don't want him because he is not the Messiah they wanted. He says, I came from God and I am here. Look at verse 44. This is where it gets very, very contentious between Jesus and the Pharisees. And if there was any doubt among the Pharisees that this guy needed to be put to death, it would be verse 44 that would seal the deal for him. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Go back to First John. Jesus says to the disciples, as they're sitting there, and specifically the Pharisees, that there is a difference between being a son of God and a son of the devil. And in fact, he says that these Pharisees, these religious rulers, the ones who practice religion faithfully every day, he says, your father is not God. And the reason that Jesus knew this is not only he was God, but their actions told him something about who they really were. That they were liars. They would say one thing, do something different. They're murderers because they're already plotting Jesus' death. But if you could go back in a time capsule, if you could go back to this day, if you could, if you could walk the streets of Jerusalem and you could see these men walking in the streets, you would come away with the conclusion that these men are certainly right with God. I mean, they look the part. They got the long flowing robes. They've got a what was called a phylactery on their forehead. It was a little leather pouch with Bible verses in it. They, they would go to the temple and they would go through all of the religious steps. I mean, these men looked very pious and very religious. So from everyone else's perspective, when they looked at these, these men, certainly you'd have to come to the conclusion that they're right with God. I mean, look how religious they are. So Jesus says to these religious men, he says to them, your father's not God at all. Your father is Satan. How can we know the difference? Last week we talked about that love should be the characteristic of anyone who's following Jesus, right? That we either love our brother, love our sister, love the world, love people, broken people and all people in between, that, that we are called to love the way Jesus loved. But this week we're going to look at another characteristic. How do we know when someone is a Christ follower? Is it because they, they walked an aisle somewhere at a revival? Is it because they repeated a prayer that a pastor or minister told them to repeat? Is it because they got dunked in water in baptism? Is it because they're a member of a church? Is it because, well, they, they attend a church? Does, does that make a person 
a Christ follower. Well, the Pharisees were highly regarded for their religious observance, but yet Jesus says they're sons of the devil, so obviously we have a problem here. That, that you can go through the steps of religiosity, yet at the same time not be right with God, and that should scare us to death. Re honestly, this, this should make us pause. That, that we could be hypocritical to such a degree that we can go through all the, mission, the motions of religion, yet be far, far, far from Jesus. So what John's going to tell us here, and I think what John's going to tell us in this text comes right out of what happened in John 8. I think, I think the Apostle John was thinking about that day. I think he was thinking about that contentious moment when he writes this letter. This is some 50 years later. John is writing to second and third generation Christians in a place called Ephesus where they've already put another pastor to death because of his faith, Timothy. Listen to what he says. What he's going to point out to us is that the practice of our life, how we live our life, points to where we are spiritually, undeniably. Look at verse 1 in chapter 3 of 1 John. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given us? That we should be called children of God, so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. I think John, right as he's getting ready to get into this idea or this premise of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus versus someone who's just a fan. We talked about that last week. How do we know the difference between a, a fan and a follower? How do we know the difference between someone who's following Jesus and someone who's not? Before he gets into that, John talks about what it means to be a child of God. Have you ever heard this statement? I hear it in the news quite a bit now these days. Well, everyone's a child of God. I mean, we're all children of God. We're all created by God. Therefore, we're all children of God. The reality is, is what John's going to say here is that is not exactly true. He says that those who are children of God have experienced the love of God. This love that he talks about in verse 1. He says that we've experienced a love, a love that pursued us, a love that was willing to forgive us. But notice this. He says that when we've experienced that love, the world no longer knows who we are. He says here that this is the reason why the world doesn't know us. There has never been another time in my lifetime where the contrast was greater between what it means to follow Jesus and culture versus following the culture. There has never been a time in my lifetime, and maybe in yours, where in our culture right now, where they're heading versus what God has called us to as Christ followers, you could not have more of a contrast. And can I say to each of you who put your faith in Jesus, you might as well go ahead and just follow Jesus. You might as well just go ahead and go all in. Because the contrast could not be more. There is no middle ground. There is no way to walk and hold hands with the culture and hold hands with Jesus. Those days are fast gone. When I was growing up, and maybe many of you, and I know some of our senior adults can relate to this, when you were growing up, church was just what you did. I mean, it was just, it was just a given in this community and many other throughout the South especially. That Sundays, Wednesdays, vacation Bible school, whatever was going on, you just went to church. When you talk with people in your community, you had this connection point about the Bible and about the church and about Jesus. Folks, can I just tell you, those days are long, long gone. 
more than likely now, if you have any conversation with anybody in the world about Jesus, they're going to look at you well, a little different. You're an enigma to them. If you're following Jesus and you live by principles, the finding God's Word, if you live your life in righteousness, you are at odds with a world that says live any way you want to live. So folks, there's never been more of a time where following Jesus is more contrasted with where the world is. He says here, the world does not know us. Why does the world, does not, why does the world not know us? Because they don't know Him. They don't know who we're following. That's the point. John is saying not every single person is a child of God, but those who are, those who are, have been separated from the world. Not only that, look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. In other words, we've been adopted by God. God is our Father, and as such, we live differently, and the world looks at us and goes, y'all are different. <laughs> Why do you live that way? Why is that important to you? Why do you not live for yourself? Why do you not look out for number one? Why are you always concerned about other people? He says here that, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So not only are we children of God, but we don't remain just children. We grow up. So in theology and doctrine, these are some words we throw around, it's, is that at the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you've become justified. You know what that means? It means that in that moment, God has adopted you. He has declared you to be right. He has, he has declared at that moment that everything that's happened in your past is now forgotten, forgiven, and will not be held against you again. And that we have the opportunity to grow up and become like Christ. The idea of that is sanctification. We have justification, God declaring us righteous. We now have sanctification, which is this big fancy word for simply meaning that we walk like Jesus walked. We live like He lived. We love like He loved. We're gentle like He was gentle. We're kind like He was kind. We speak the truth just the way He spoke the truth. We grow up into Christ. And He says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be, what we will be, growth, that, that the same sins, the same issues that I was dealing with when I first came to faith in Christ should be in my past and I should be growing up into Christ, maturing. Look, when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not this static place where you just stay right there. No, it is a growing process. I'll, I'll give you this illustration before, but I, th I think it's good. I think it works. When I was a kid, I used to put on my dad's like suit coats. When I was a kid, maybe your kids do this. Put on your, put on your suit coat or put on your winter jacket or something. It's big and it's floppy and it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. Well, the day you put your faith in Jesus... God wrapped you in a coat of righteousness. In other words, when, when God looks at you, He sees perfection. Now, we all know as we follow Jesus, we're far from perfect, right? But He puts a coat on us that doesn't really fit. It's floppy. It does, I mean, we, we know we've been changed, but yet we're still dealing with some of the stuff in our past. So there's this growing up into Christ that we, we begin to go through. And, and as we grow up, we grow up into that coat. It begins to fit. Not perfectly. We never really become that place of perfection in this life. But notice where John goes next. He says, and we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. There will be a time where Jesus comes back. He'll take us together with him. And in that moment, I will come to the end of growing up in Christ, and I will be made full and complete in him. As I enter that kingdom, I will enter because of the work of God in my life. Not because of something I've done, not because of my works. Verse 3, and everyone 
who thus hopes in him purifies himself is also pure. In other words, as we're following Jesus, as our hope is in him, we grow in purity. We grow in separation from the world as far as the world's culture and what the world says is best for us. We continue to grow in love for other people. We continue to grow up into Christ because our hope is in him and not in the world. Now, why does John put all this on the front end? Because what he's going to say next, what he's going to say next is going to challenge us between who is a child of God and who isn't. The practice of obedience. Now, every single person in this room, every single person on this planet has been created in the image of God. It doesn't mean that we look like God. It just means that we share characteristics with Him. We have the ability to reason. We have the ability to, to show emotion. We have the ability to love. We have the ability to make decisions. We have the ability to choose. That, that's all part of God's image in you. But just because you've been created in God's image doesn't make you necessarily a child of God. And that's what John wants us to understand because what he's going to say next is really going to clarify two specific possibilities here. And you're in one of the two. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to contrast these two possibilities. The first is the one who's practicing unrighteousness. What does that mean? It means a person who has no problem living in such a way that it's a complete contradiction to what God has called us to live and to be. They can be hateful. They can be angry. They can be, they can be motivated by lust or greed. They, they can live their life in such a way that it's completely about themselves and about no one else. John says, the practice. What does that mean? He's talking about habitual, a habit. He's talking about things that God says we're to stay away from as his followers. We can run to with no problem, no conviction, no problem at all. Consume it, whatever it is for ourselves. Make it about us. Live our lives in such a way that, that God makes no difference whatsoever in our lives except on Sunday when we show up to church three, four, five times a year. That from Monday to Saturday, it's all about me. It's all about me living for me. He says that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. What does that mean? It means that there is a law that has been given, and we have no problem walking right across that law. doesn't matter. Now, I'll stay within the guidelines as long as it appeals to me, but as soon as the law gets into my way, as long as there's, if there's something that this law is preventing that I want to participate in, that all the boundaries get cast aside. He says that lawlessness is the very definition of sin. What is sin? Well, sin is disobedience. Look at verse 6. As John continues to contrast this, he says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You remember where John says up here that, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're separated from the world? And the world doesn't know us, and the reason the world doesn't know who we are and why we do what we do is because they don't know the Jesus that we follow. John says here that any person who is continually practicing evil, that there's no way they can abide in Christ. But because Christ in His holiness and His perfection and we abiding in Him, 
that there's no way that we can continue to practice sin because the one who does does not know him at all. Jesus unpacks this whole concept of abiding in John chapter 15. It's interesting that, that John brings this up here because in John 15, John writes that Jesus says that those who are with him abide in him. And he gives the illustration of a grapevine that, that Jesus is the vine, his followers are the branches. Those branches must be connected to that vine. If those branches are not connected to that vine, there's no way that they can have nourishment. There's no, there's no way that they can serve and do what Jesus has called them to do. There's no way they can bear fruit. And, and Jesus says, if the branch is not connected to the vine, then the branch is worthless to be thrown aside, that there is no relationship there. John says here that if we're not abiding in Christ, if we're not with Him, connected to Him, concerned about Him, in love with Him, following Him, then we do not know Him. Regardless of how much going to church you do, regardless of how much money you give, regardless of what denomination you fall in love with, if Jesus is not the King of your life, if you've surrendered to anything else other than Him, John says here, that there's a reason you keep on sinning. There's a reason you practice unrighteousness because you don't, you don't know Him. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7, right? We talked about it last week. The scariest verses in the New Testament where He has these people standing before Him who says, hey, I did all these things, right? I did all these things. And Jesus says, I don't even know who you are. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. John says here that no matter what you say, if the practice of your life is disobedience, you're not abiding in Christ. Look down, on, down to verse, uh, verse 8. This is where he brings up what he heard that day in uh, Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Did you get that? It's pretty harsh, isn't it? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes practice of sinning. Folks, we could, we could have a clear line drawn here. John says, just like Jesus said, that, if, that if, if you are practicing these things, that there's no condemnation, there's no, there's no conviction in your heart, that there's only one of two possibilities here. That you don't have God as your father, you have a whole other father, and your allegiance and your character is being shaped by him, not by God. John says that you have a different father. In regards to what your words are, if your practice indicates that you're not following God, then it's a good possibility you're not. You see, the thing for me is that the real issue here is when you compare what John says here to what Jesus said in John 8, the, the scary thing for me is, is that we can be practicing religion and yet be cold and indifferent towards Christ. We, we could go through the motions. We, we could go through the steps and have all of the look of Christianity, yet at the same time, not have ever been changed by Him. I don't know about you, but that deeply concerns me. It's not because the Bible doesn't tell us clearly what to expect if you're in this camp or you're in this camp. He does. He tells us clearly right here and in many other places. You see, the Pharisees were trusting in something else. 
What were they trusting in? Well, their Jewish heritage. They were very proud of it. They were so proud of it that that if you ask them, they'd be glad to tell you all about their heritage and what family they came from and and what tribe they came from. And, And therefore, their pride in that is what they believed made them right with God. But Jesus steps into the scene and says, you're not, you're not sons of God at all. The question is, is, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in a minister? Are you trusting in a denomination? Are you trusting in a building? Are you trusting in something you said 25 years ago but has made no change in your life whatsoever? Are you, are you trusting in that Billy Graham evangelistic uh, event you went to where you raised your hand among 10,000 people and you repeated a prayer, but you never actually put faith in Jesus? And all these years, you've been going back to that moment. You've never had assurance. You've never been really certain where you are. And you've been practicing unrighteousness from that day till now. Well, maybe you put your faith... And Billy Graham, or you maybe you put your faith in raising a hand. Maybe you put your faith in some prayer you repeated. But unless you put your faith in Jesus, you are never coming out of darkness in the light. So let's look at the other contrast. Let's look at the one who is, so we know the difference. Look at verse 5. John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So John starts out again to remind us of of a, of a theological principle here, doctrine. He says that, that Jesus came to deal with sin. He came that He might do away with. Jesus came that He might take away sins. You see, Jesus didn't come to just make you a little bit better. You've heard me say this before. Jesus is not, the gospel is not some kind of like a little life enhancement, right? That we, that we get a little bit of religion, we add that into our life, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. And, but Jesus didn't come to just give you a little bit of enhancement. And not only that, Jesus came in pure sinlessness. In other words, Jesus had not committed any sins. You want to take a look at Muhammad? You want to take a look at Allah? You want to take a look at any other religion in the world? What you'll find out at the head of those religions are men who failed miserably. But this leader, this one, Jesus, perfect in deed, in word, and action. No one else has ever pulled that off. He did. And the reason he was sinless is because there's no way that he could have delivered us from sin if he himself is in sin himself. Think of it this way. If you're, if you're in the ocean drowning, the guy next to you drowning doesn't offer you a whole lot of help, does he? If, if Jesus was sinful and we were sinful, if Jesus is in that sinking water with us, there's not a bit of help he can offer to us. But no, Jesus being sinless is standing on the shore, sure-footed, and he's offering us rescue. John says that this is why he came. He came to deal with the sin problem. The, the, the problem that every human being is dealing with. The problem that every human being was born into. You were born into lostness. And it's not long before we choose to disobey. But notice what else he says. Jump down to verse 6. In verse 6, it says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. But notice this, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. 
So if we go back to that moment, if you're a disciple of Christ, you go back to that moment, you put your faith in Jesus, and God declared you in that moment to be righteous. I told you that we grow up into that. That what God declares on that day, we spend the rest of our lives growing up in it. We don't, we don't get it perfect. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We fail. But the trajectory of our lives, the desire of our heart, is to please the Christ who saved us and set us free. John says, little children, let no one deceive you. If you're practicing righteous, it's because you are righteous as He is righteous. So the point is, is that the moment that God saved you, changed you, He also gave you the power and ability to live that out. God's not going to call you to something that He's not going to empower you to live. So this whole idea that, that I, can, I can live and go back into the world while at the same time following Jesus, that I can somehow go back out there and just live the way I used to live, I'm sorry, but that's not New Testament Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. You are either in this camp or you're in this camp, and John says there are indications in our heart and the way we live that indicates whether we're a fan or a follower. John says, John says that there is a seed that is in us. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. What is John talking about? If you look through the New Testament, you'll find in the parables of Jesus, you'll find in some of the writing, First Peter, you, you'll find that the idea or the concept that the seed is the Word of God, the truth of God. John says here that that seed, the truth of God, is in us, abides in us. On the one hand, it's the gospel that we responded to. The Holy Spirit drew us to salvation. We heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit began to work and draw us. And we came to that place where we surrendered all to Christ. And from that moment on, we had the Holy Spirit living in us. God, get this, God of the universe, the one who spoke it all into existence, lives in me and lives in every follower of Jesus. The author of Scripture lives inside of me. So John says that we have the seed of truth abiding in us, and as such, the Holy Spirit, the truth of Scripture, the truth of what it means to follow Jesus, I can't just live any way that I want to live. I gave up that right at age 16. At age 16, when I put my faith in Jesus, I gave up all rights to my life. The Holy Spirit that lives in me will not allow me to go back and do what I used to do. Does that mean I'm perfect? Absolutely not. Just talk to my wife. She'll be glad to get you up to date on my lack of perfection. But when I fail, it breaks my heart. And I do. Sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I forget things. Some things are things I ought to do, I don't do, and things I don't do that I know I ought not to do, and you get the point. But the reality is, is at age 16, God changed who I was. Not only did he change me, but here, get this, get this. The day I put my faith in Jesus, I died on that day. The guy that I was, the awful, arrogant, prideful, lust-filled, greedy, self-centered, self-righteous, holy terror for my parents, that was me. That guy back there died on March 22nd, 1987. But I didn't remain dead, as you can probably figure out. Jesus resurrected me to new life. So when we say the new birth, that's what we're talking about. 
You see, Jesus didn't come to just make you a little bit better. He didn't come to, to just kind of make you feel a little bit better about yourself. He didn't come to set up a, a religion so that you could have some inoculation to sin and feel a little bit better about yourself. Jesus came to radically change you from the inside out. And the only way that can happen is your, your death and His resurrection in you. You see, there is no just remaking you as far as you know, putting some things on you to make you look better, act better. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is death, resurrection. That's why we do baptisms, right? Death, resurrection. John says in verse 9, he says he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, it required a redo. How many of you would like to have a start over, a redo? How many of you would like to have just a clean slate? Some of you are enslaved to your past. Some of you are living so much in your past that you can't live for today. So much of, so, some of you are living so much to what you did back there that you cannot even conceive of being forgiven, set free. That, that, that the God of the universe could somehow forget about all that. That's what it says in His Word. That at that moment you're forgiving. Forgiven, He cast your sin as far as these is from the West. He says that He doesn't remember it against you anymore. How could that possibly be? The only way that can happen... Well, it's for you to die. And that's what Jesus came to do. You see, Jesus came to deliver you from sin and bondage and slavery. And no amount of works that you can do, no amount of walking down an aisle, no amount of putting your trust in a minister, no amount of putting your trust in some prayer you prayed, rather than putting your trust in Jesus, will ever bring you out of that place of brokenness into a place of life. I'm going to give you this illustration. I, I almost talked myself out of giving this, so, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway because <laughs> I think it gives us some context. You can take an old pig. You know pigs, they love slop. They love mud. That's just their nature. They, they love to get where it's nasty. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a guy out the road from us who had a hog farm. You knew it before you ever got to it because you could smell it, right? You've been behind the hog trucks, you know. Smell is pretty pungent. And um, a hog just loves to just wallow in the slop and the mud. And they'll eat some things that you couldn't even possibly imagine eating, right? Well, you can take that pig and you can bring him out of the mud and you can wash him up real good and you can spray some Axe body spray on him because we all love to smell that, right? I had to say that I'm sorry. I'm not a big fan. But anyway, spray some Axe body spray on him shine him up, you know, fix his nails and maybe put some um, lotion on him to get him nice and smooth. And you can build him a nice little house there, put some carpet in there for him to live. And as soon as you turn your back, you know where he's going to go? Right back to the mud hole. Why is that? It's because he has a desire. It's kind of innate in him that he desires the slop and the mire and the mud and the filth more than he desires that nice little pig house you built for him with carpet and cologne. Now, at this point, I'm going to put myself in the illustration because I don't want to offend you. Now, you know where that pig eventually... You know how, you know how a pig stops being a pig? You know, you know when a pig stops being a pig going towards slop and mud? You know when they finally stop? When they become bacon? 
And I like me some bacon, okay? I'm all in on bacon. But the only time a pig will stop going back to slop and mud is when he dies. Then he's done. If I go back to when I was 16, I've been running from the Lord for a while. My, my, my parents have been praying for me. As a matter of fact, when I would come home late at night, when I would come home late at night after being out doing what I was doing, the light was on under my parents' bedroom door and it wouldn't go out till I got into bed. I knew what they were doing. They were praying for this old pig who was out in the slop. And I thought that was life. I thought that was really living. The stupidity that I was participating in, I thought, I thought that I had found life, man. This is where it is. Now, I went to church. As the old saying goes, every time the doors were open, I was there. I knew the songs, I knew the Bible verses. But on the inside of me, I was a rebellion. I was in rebellion to the core. You see, I liked that slop. I liked that mud I was wallowing. I liked it. I enjoyed it. And maybe that's where you find yourself. You, the reason you're not putting your faith in Jesus is you kind of like where you're at. You kind of like the addiction. You kind of like the heroin. You kind of like the Oxycontin. You kind of like the alcohol. You kind of like the pornography. You like where you are. You're loving the slop. Jesus knew that the only way I would ever break free of that mess back there is that if I come to a sudden and quick death. And that's exactly where he brought me to. On March 22nd, 1987. And listen, folks, I didn't deserve new life. you got to understand. Yeah, I was 16, and maybe some of you had a lot more living and rebellion, but I'm going to tell you something. I made the best of my time in, my, in those years before I came to faith in Jesus, I was pretty good at sinning. I was pretty good at practicing unrighteousness to the heartbreaking of my parents. But just like that old pig, Jesus knew that the only way I was ever going to come out of that is for me to die. And on that day, I did. And He, out of His grace and His mercy, I don't know why I'm getting so emotional about a pig story, but nonetheless, I'm the pig in the story. He brought me out. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think there should be a difference between who I once was then and who I am now? If I died and was resurrected to do life, do you think there should be evidence of that? Do you think there should be a difference in the way I live my life? The answer to that question is absolutely, positively, yes. You see, the fact of the matter is, you're trying to put some cologne on by walking an aisle. You're trying to put some cologne on by raising your hand every time you go to a funeral. Every time you go to a funeral, every time you go to a revival, every time you go to a service where somebody says, raise your hand and repeat this prayer, you're doing it because you've never had any assurance of where you stand with Christ. So you just keep going through the same motions, the same motions, trying to get some kind of foundation under your feet. And you've put your faith in every prayer, and you've put your faith in a minister, you've put your faith in a carpeted aisle, you've put your faith in a podium, you've put your faith in a youth camp, you've put your faith in a children's camp, but you've not put your faith in Jesus, and therefore you are dead in your sins. 
if any of that stuff doesn't lead to Jesus, then it's nothing more than trying to clean up a pig that's out in the mire. You see, Jesus didn't come to just ref- Jesus didn't come to reform. He didn't come to reform you. He, he didn't come to take you like where you are now and, and dress you up a little bit. He didn't come to just kind of fix a few things in your life. He came so that you may die and be resurrected to new life, just like Him. And be in Christ, changed forevermore, growing up into Him. And without that death and resurrection, you are the same person you've always been. Listen, our assurance is not anchored in how we feel. I know that some of you have really put your faith in Jesus. You you had a change in your life, but you've struggled with assurance all these years. Can I just say to you that if your assurance is linked to some way of how you feel, this may be a shock to you. There's some days I get up as your pastor, I don't feel all that born again. I just don't. It could be the world. It could be what I'm dealing with. The fact of the matter is, I don't feel. But it doesn't change the reality of what Jesus says. And Jesus said that if I put my faith in Him, John 5, 24, I have crossed from death unto life. The fact of the matter is, I am His. He is mine. I know the day that it happened. I know what's happened in that between that time that God has been growing me up into Christ. And the only way for that to happen was for me to die when I did. You can live your life in the practice of religion all the while being spiritually dead. And then stand before Jesus one day to the shock and dismay of you. Jesus look at you, I know you did all these works. Oh, I, I know you did all those things. But you didn't do those for me because you never knew me. And I don't know who you are. So therefore, depart. You're either a fan or a follower. You're either practicing righteousness or unrighteousness, but don't be fooled into thinking that there's some kind of middle ground here by which you can just live any way you want to live and at the same time be right with the Lord. Father in heaven, I never deserved to have that kind of forgiveness all the way back my goodness, Lord, it's been a long time. I never deserved that. It was out of Your good grace that You sought me out. It's out of Your good grace that right now You're seeking others. Father, for the one here today who is practicing unrighteousness, Father, I pray that they would stop trying to be religious and just be real and honest. Eternity hangs in the balance. Father, this is not something to be toyed around with. Father, if, if religion is all they have, if denomination is all they have, if walking an aisle and saying a prayer is all they have and they don't have you, then Father, today is the day. Father, for those in this room and online that are struggling with their assurance, Father, I believe that if we take Your Word for what it says, that we can look back across our lives and we can see the change that You've made in our lives. We're not perfect, but man, we're not who we used to be. 
And Father, the only way that can happen is if a death occurred and a resurrection happened after that. So Father, for those who are struggling with assurance, I pray that they look back over their life, see the change that you've made in their life. And Father, if they are different, then Father, may they live out their faith on a solid foundation. They would engage in Great Commission work because they are sure and steadfast on that they are yours. And Father, you have changed them. Father, draw those, draw those people to yourself this morning that are trusting in everything else but you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.